RTHK. 24 hours a day. This is RTHK. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I head to Star House for a chat with American lawyer and collector Roy Delbick. In his office, Roy has a superb library of largely paper memorabilia, focusing on Sino-US relations, but also China, sport and many other aspects. I had a very enjoyable morning looking at photographs, a couple of scrapbooks and a Pan Am flight bag that went with one of two planes for the momentous visit by President Richard Nixon to China in 1972. But first, let's take a look at some sport. As rather fittingly for the Wimbledon weekend, or the finals, Roy tells me about two tennis champions who came from Hong Kong. In terms of collecting? Whoa, I'd say a collector of historical memorabilia, largely paper, relating to China or the Chinese people. And within that, lots of different roads, you know, that I go down. And an abiding interest in the West and China. But having said that, you know, I, I do try to collect PRC things, purely Chinese things, and maybe sometimes meet in the middle with things. You described to me how when you first start collecting as a boy, that could be baseball cards, uh, right. which you, you play with your friends. And uh, you've got a, a general interest. I mean, you're a sportsman yourself. You've got interest in yeah. sport. That, that, that's very nice of you to describe <laughs> me as a sportsman. We've only, but I'll take all compliments at my age. Yeah, I mean, I play sports, uh, still continue to potter around. But I'm really interested in collecting things about sports related to China because Emory, one of the things that has been in the back of my mind when I collect and sometimes in the front of my mind is I want to show to non-Chinese people Chinese people achieving in fields that let's say white people in America would say you know it's laundries and restaurants and whatever and I want to show achievement in um, other fields like sports I think that that's great and I think it's rather unknown yeah, so I collect things related to sports that are, let's say, Chinese athletes in Hong Kong, in China, in Taiwan, Chinese athletes visiting to compete overseas. So we can get to the tennis a little bit later, but you know, the first Chinese Olympian, 1932 in Los Angeles, was a sprinter from Manchuria, not sponsored by the Chinese government. He was sponsored, I think, in fact, by the young marshal who then kidnapped Chiang Kai-shek about six years later, but only one participant in 1932. But when we get to 1936, the games in Berlin, you know, the Hitler games, China had a soccer team that played the UK. China had, I think, a basketball team, some track and field, and they had a swimmer, including one very famous swimmer, I think, from Hong Kong. So one of the things that I have is this program from the Berlin Olympics in 1936, describes the events of the day or a couple of days, and you flip to the football. So it's all in German? All in German. And here is the lineup oh, for wow. China and Great Britain. And if you look at the names of these players, they're largely from Hong Kong. Yong Shui Yik, Wang Mi Shun. People who follow this a lot more closely than I do 
will tell you, I, I think a number of these players uh, played with South China. Well, most of them came from Taihang. Yeah, I believe China lost. But after the games, yes. after the games, and maybe even before the games, they played some friendlies. So here's another match against the UK, the Chinese team, the casuals. That was the British side versus the Chinese 11. And this was Crystal Palace. And if you open up the program. Oh, that's great what you found. Yeah, yeah, lucky. Someone is penciled in. The names in the lineup, not all of them appeared. So here is for B. Lei Choi at the left back, Mok Shui Hong came in. And this gets to another thing. I am not a person who needs things to be pristine. As a matter of fact, I love the fact that somebody is penciled in because it, it gives you an item that's lived in, you know, or a map that has, oh, you know, that's where I lived. And some people go, oh, no, no, no. You know, I want it in this virginal condition. That is not moi. Um, <laughs> but if we go back a little further in time, Hong Kong and South China have supplied the players on the national Chinese teams long before the 36 Olympics. In football. In football, that's correct. There was an Asia championship called the Far Eastern Championship Games, which was Japan, China, Philippines, India sometimes, and Thailand sometimes, I believe. Started around 1912-ish, was irregular, maybe every couple of years. So here is a postcard from the 6th Far Eastern Championship Games held in 1923. And there is the winning Chinese side, largely supplied with players from Hong Kong and Nanhua, South China. The Olympic Games is well known, 1936. The fact that you did have the China team was largely, the players were largely from Hong Kong. Right. You, in your research as a collector, have come across a couple of star tennis players. Yeah. And, and there's not so much known about them. So, yes, let's move on to tennis. Okay, so this is Wei Lok Wing, Wei the surname. An absolutely amazing guy who should be celebrated, you know, in Hong Kong by the, uh, the tennis folks. He was a rich kid. His father was Wei Luk, Wei Luk Bosan, I think Bosan Road, uh, was in the government in some capacity. He was in one of the first classes, graduating classes from Hong Kong U, I think class of 1915. I believe he was the national tennis champion of China, maybe around 1910, 11, 12, born, I'd say maybe 1892. And then he went on this odyssey which I think only rich kids can do. He goes to the United States. He goes to school, number one. I think he went to uh, RPI, Rensselaer Polytech, up in uh, upstate New York to play tennis, study more engineering. I think he was a very, very good student, a smart kid. So RPI? RPI, Rensselaer Polytech Institute. He ends up at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a famous school, then known as just technology. And he captains, I believe, the tennis team, 1917, 1918. He's a really, really good tennis player. He's also a great billiards player. 
And he has a buddy who also is a really good tennis player, also a really good billiards player. Long story short, he goes to France in World War One. There's a picture in this photo album that I have, uh, which shows him in uniform and probably part of the group of fluent English speakers, Chinese, who went to England, France to maybe work with the Chinese Labor Corps. But I don't know the whole story of that part. But he ends up in Cambridge, again, with his billiards tennis playing buddy. And he competes in the 1920 Wimbledon. He's invited to play at Wimbledon. He wins in the first round, almost makes it out of the second round, pretty close. He then, I think, goes back to Hong Kong slash China, comes back to the U.S. I think he wrote for Reader's Digest. He may have done a book on Mahjong. He dies quite sadly and mysteriously in the 1930s. His body is washed up on the shores of the Hudson River on the, on the west side of New York. But what I have, and so lucky to find it, is a photo album. So Waylock Wing it begins his life here in Hong Kong. Absolutely. Born and raised, graduates from Hong Kong U around 1915, then goes to the U.S., does his time at MIT or technology. When you're saying that, you know, he gets through to the second round of Wimbledon, yeah. that is, of course, an amateur right. championship. Right, right. So he's, at, what, working in business alongside? Well, or? no, he goes... This guy couldn't get enough degrees, you know, <clears throat> because after World War One, his service in France, he goes to Cambridge and some of the clippings in this photo album say he's in residence at King's College at Cambridge and he plays pool and tennis for Cambridge. I think he's a blue. Is that what you call it? You know, in the UK. And then he's invited to play at Wimbledon. So the interesting thing about the Wimbledon story is he almost makes it into the third round, but he becomes part of the first Davis Cup team for China. And the 1920 Wimbledon for the men was won by Bill Tilden. So Bill Tilden was this titanically gifted player. They called him Big Bill Tilden. And because he was tall. He was very tall and very good-looking guy. And Wei met up with Tilden playing Davis Cup. So right here is a picture in Kansas City with Wei and his Chinese teammates, Davis Cup. That guy, I think, is Gordon Lum, who went to Columbia, on one side of the net. And there's Big Bill on the other side of the net. And Wei has this expression on his face. It's almost philosophical, like... But part of it is, God, when am I ever going to beat this big donkey, you know? What happened with the Davis Cup? Well, that's an interesting question. The Davis, I think the Chinese Davis Cup team started maybe in the early 1920s. And I read somewhere that China was going to have a tennis entrance into the Olympics in Paris in 1924. But for some reason, that didn't happen. So... We wait until 1932, Los Angeles, until China has its first entrance. But I think he played Davis Cup over the years. But at the back of this album, which was purchased in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which makes sense, or at least there's a stamp of a Cambridge um, establishment, because that's where MIT was located, there are two cards. And they're membership cards. The Westside Tennis Club. Membership card, Mr. W. Lockway, 1929. And a membership card for 1930. And 
call me a little crazy, but I saw these cards and I went, whoa, could you imagine what it was like to have been him? The depression is starting, probably didn't affect him that much because I think he was quite wealthy. But still, you're the only Asian person, you know, <laughs> probably in these environments and you walk in and, you know, just the feeling, you know, maybe discomfort. Of course, people know you're a great tennis player, right? You, you, you went to Wimbledon, but still that pressure or burden that he must have felt. Yeah, you look at this and you go, wow. That's really something, so. Yes, now this album though, I mean, because you've got this mix of photographs, but also uh, newspaper cuttings. So is this an album about him? Yeah, it's all about him. And who would have put that together? Him or his wife. Oh wow, we're yeah. really, yeah. we're going back to the source. Yeah, 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 this is, this is the source. He had a son and somehow this thing got out into the marketplace. I bought this from a vendor, I think, in the U.S. And you can see some pictures of... Oh, yeah, of him playing tennis. Yeah, I think this is at Wimbledon. Mm. I think this is him at Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's pretty darn cool. Um, now, you said, sadly, that he's... I mean, he can only be in his uh, 30s, early 40s when he dies then. Yeah, probably early 40s, late 30s, yeah. And do we know why or how? No, no, at least. But he's featured by MIT. MIT has a site called... China comes to MIT about some of the early uh, MITers who, who came from China. So I've connected with a uh, professor at MIT and I sent her all of these images. The other tennis player, also a great story, less of a Hong Kong connection, is the shortest player to ever play at Wimbledon, 1.46 meters, I think four feet, nine inches tall. And her name was Jem Hoa Hing. Her family, Chinese, her family was from British Guiana. Well, I mean, they had settled there from China, I believe. And she was born in Hong Kong. I think at a pretty early age, she moved to the UK. Her mother was a doctor and also played tennis. So she grew up primarily in the UK. But there is a Hong Kong connection for sure. She was born in Hong Kong from what I've read. So what I have of hers is... Well, we're looking at a picture of her with a, a striped, yeah, a striped sports shirt on and a tennis skirt. 1936, 15 years old. And where's she training there? In England, in I England. think. She's yes. playing in a tournament in England. But what I found was a scrapbook, her scrapbook, of a tour that she and other tennis players took. To oh, I can see why you're much more interested in this personal... It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, to India to play in the first Asian, you know, championships, <laughs> uh, which I think the, uh, the idea was to create an Asian Wimbledon. I think it was in Calcutta on grass. So you've just opened up this large uh, scrapbook. Oh, it's marvelous. And you've got a, a picture over there, a postcard of the, the plane. Yeah. Oh yes, and the inside seating. The inside that seating. must have been very exciting <laughs> for her. I Absolutely. But the interesting story about her is that she made it to the fourth round of Wimbledon, which I think is further than any Hong Kong person has ever gone. Jem Hua Huing, born in Hong Kong in 1920, who won the Junior Singles Championship of Great Britain and of France in 1936. Between 1937 and 1961, she competed in 19 Wimbledon championships. Her best singles result was reaching the fourth round 
1949 and in 1957. In 1949, she defeated fourth-seeded American player Gussie Moran in the third round. But what was so interesting was that in the third round, she beat an American player, a real kind of glamour girl, who caused celeb because she had lace knickers on. And this just, whatever, people just couldn't deal with it at that time, named Gussie Moran. And Gussie was about a foot taller than Jem. Jem beat her, went to the fourth round, which was the round of 16, and then lost 6-4-6-4 in the fourth round. And we'll find references or pictures to Gussie Moran all over this album. So either they became great friends or she just wanted to remind people, I beat this person. I don't know. And she's writing in English. <clears throat> yeah, she's writing in English. Very neat handwriting, actually, in a fountain pen. There she is. You can see. You can always pick her out because she's a heck of a lot shorter than uh, anybody else. Oh, but she's put this together <clears throat> when she's much older. Yeah. Well, this is 51. They take off in December 49. They're in India, I think, in January 50. So by that time, she's 30 years old. When she put this together, I assume it was contemporaneous. Yes. So there's Gussie. Completely different physiognomy than, than Jem. I mean, you just, it's, it's amazing, her victory over her. Yeah, she's got a number of players from that era. Yeah. Just all cut out of a newspaper and stuck in. There's the International a, Lawn Tennis Championships of Asia. Asia. Played on the Calcutta South Club courts, December to January. And then here's a, from Nehru. I am partial to the development of sports and athletics in India. I think that we must pay a great deal of attention to this. So, as to improve the physique of the nation, I welcome, therefore, the holding of the International Lawn Tennis Championships of Asia in Calcutta. This is, I am told, the first time that such an all-Asia lawn tennis championships has been organized. Sports and athletics are special fields which promote international contacts. And I love this last paragraph. As an old lawn tennis player of very moderate capacity, I also welcome the development of lawn tennis in India. I hope that these championships will be a success and will be played in the true spirit of sport. And there he signed it. Yep. And that's December the 13th, 1949, with a picture of him. Yes. Oh, this is... Calcutta South. That's an extraordinary uh, scrapbook. Yeah. The last few pages, there's Gussie and her. You can see the size differential. And it ends with pictures of and articles of Gussie. So she just had Gussie on her brain. Gorgeous Gussie engaged. She met him only last month. <laughs> <laughs> the announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. Premier Cho Enlai and Dr. Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's Assistant for National Security Affairs, held talks in Peking from July 9 to 11, 1971. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Cho Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. 
The meeting between the leaders of China and the United States is to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries and also to exchange views on questions of concern to the two sides. As we can see from your wide collection of ephemera and also non-paper items, you've got a big interest as an American in Sino-US relations. Absolutely, particularly with what's going on these days. So for an American, the single most momentous event, at least in recent history, is of course Nixon's trip to China in 1972. So I've tried to collect a bunch of things around that trip. That's something I think collectors like to do. If there's something of interest, try to find items related to an event or events. It just makes you know, the collection experience richer. With respect to the Nixon visit, I brought out a few things to show you. One of them is the bag that Pan Am, the now defunct airline, produced. And I understand that the bag was given to the members of the press. It's the iconic Pan Am blue bag with the white piping. And on the side of the bag, it says the visit of President Richard M. Nixon to the People's Republic of China. No date, interestingly. I have no idea how many of these bags were produced. I've seen it three times, and I bought it all three times. The first time that I bought it was from the estate of one of the pilots, I think his name was John Harris, of the 747. There were two press planes. The first press plane, because it was called Nihao One and had the more celebrated newscasters like Walter Cronkite on it, was operated by TWA. The second press plane, Nihao Two, had lesser luminaries, and the story goes that Barbara Walters found herself on Nihao Two and was pretty miffed. And that was operated by Pan Am. It really should have been reversed. Pan Am should have had the lead plane because its uh, history with China uh, goes back a long ways and is very, very rich. In any event, I got this bag and it raises a number of questions. Why no date? Maybe the date kept on changing. And where was this bag manufactured? <laughs> so I found this bag again and then I found it a third time. And when I found it the third time, it came with a three by five card, which is a kind of card, you know, when I was growing up, where you would write in pencil, in print, not longhand, kind of a book reportish type of three by five card. And on the top of the card, it says, Samantha B, written in cursive, November 6, 1989. This is a vinyl travel bag. So again, this is written 17 years or so after the visit. It was made by a company that was owned by my mom's uncle Jack. And then Samantha B, probably, I don't know, what would you say, 11 or 12 years old by the handwriting at the time, goes on to describe the significance of the trip. And one of the great things about this card, besides filling in some blanks, and the vendor who sold me the bag and the card, I believe indicated that Uncle Jack was located, or his factory was located in Providence, Rhode Island, is that it's the view of history from the bottom up. How an event of significance affected an ordinary person. And Emory, sometimes getting that kind of item that looks at history from the bottom up rather than the top down, that's the best. The bag, which I've got in front of me, the visit of President Richard M. Nixon. What was his middle name? Millhouse. 
M-I-L-H-O-U-S, I believe. Milhouse. Richard Milhouse Nixon to the People's Republic of China, of course, that was an absolutely monumental visit in 1972. These two planes going off with journalists inside, and uh, here is one of those press bags. Do we have any idea what was inside the bag? Don't know. Yeah, there's don't, not, not any content. Don't, don't know. You know, there's a lot of um, Pan Am memorabilia that's sent because the airline had a lot of followers, and in the wake of its demise, you know, various Pan Am related items are traded on eBay, but I've seen almost nothing related to the Nixon visit that's a Pan Am thing other than this bag. Now, there might have been other things. I, if it was going to be stuffed, I, I know that there was some kit that was given. I can't say that it was in the bag for folks on the trip, which included, you know, a, a primer on Mandarin, some things about Peking opera, but can't tell you what the contents were. Yeah, interesting. And it's good that, it, I mean, it's in good nick that it's uh, been preserved all these years. And Samantha B. Samantha I mean, B. She's, she's born in 76 or approximately. Yeah. So she's, she's a few years after yeah. her mum's uncle had manufactured these bags yeah, in yeah. Rhode Island. Yeah, we think in Oran, but we know it's Uncle Jack. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have a top-down item, and that is a letter that Nixon wrote after he returned to Washington from the trip. The letter is dated March 22nd, 1972. It's on White House stationery, and it's written to a guy named Arthur Adler, who apparently had written in during the trip congratulating Nixon on the visit. I say congratulating. I don't have Adler's incoming but from Nixon's response, it was clearly a congratulatory letter. Dear Mr. Adler, my recent homecoming from China was made all the more rewarding by your very thoughtful message. And I wanna thank you for your generous comments. When I first announced this trip last July, I described it as a journey for peace. Now that I have returned, I can say with confidence that my discussions with the leaders of the People's Republic of China have given us the tools to strengthen the structure for an enduring world peace. And here comes the line that really resonates with me. One, that is a world peace that is more than the mere absence of war. Hmm. For this beginning toward a better world, I am deeply grateful to the American people whose goodwill and spiritual support made this journey possible. With my best wishes, sincerely, Richard Nixon. I also have the envelope for the letter. And then another thing related to the visit is sort of the culmination of the visit, which is the normalization of diplomatic relations with China that occurred some seven years later. I think it was in 79, but I just obtained a letter December 78 on the cusp of normalization from Jimmy Carter on White House stationery to a Senator Henry Bellman, appreciating the support that Bellman had voiced for the normalization of relations. Another item right here related to the visit are pictures. And these are pictures of the visit that were taken by the official White House photographer, Ollie Atkins. And they include some pictures that you know are now iconic, including I think some morsel of something on the end of Nixon's chopstick with Joe and Lai. He's having a few issues, but uh, whatever. <laughs> so it's great when you can gather these different items from various vendors and put together something that is, 
I don't want to say more meaningful, but deeper than just having one item. But it's a matter of luck, too. Also, for me to see a, a letter from then President Jimmy Carter that's just signed off Jimmy. Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy, yeah. 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 A Plains guy from Plains, Georgia. Yeah. My thanks to collector Roy Delbick there for an enjoyable morning looking through scrapbooks and photographs and talking about champion tennis players and the Nixon visit to China. Roy's collection numbers around 10,000 items and I look forward to heading back to his library for another chat. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs> <laughs>